Okay, two announcements. Uh, last week, I announced that we needed a nurse for the uh, Camp Arete this summer, and that has been handled. So that was a quick response. Would that all announcements uh, be taken care of so, so quickly and expeditiously? And then the other announcement, which needs to be handled just as about as quickly, is we need some teachers in prep school. So if you're interested or you want to uh, volunteer somebody, then you can, uh, you can do so. I think that's a great way to get people involved. Some of you uh, know who Ursula Kemp is. Ursula Kemp and Betty Thiem wrote the quarterlies, the Sunday school material that uh, Bracket Church used for years and years and years. And uh, last year I had, uh, Ursula was my first grade Sunday school teacher. She attended, came to church here not, what, about a year, year and a half ago, came over to visit. She um, has quite an interesting story because she was one of the, uh, her family were one of the Shanghai Jews. They escaped from Nazi Germany, and the only place they could go was either China or Colombia. Colombia was having a revolution, so they went to Shanghai. And there she met her husband, Ian, who uh, went to be with the Lord 25 years or so ago. And then um, they eventually made their way to Houston, and I believe she was saved at Barack Church. And she had been there six months, and they decided they needed to start a Sunday school class. So for those of you who are historians of the church there, that they needed to start a Sunday school class. This was in 1950. So somebody behind her tapped her on the shoulder and said, I want you to teach Sunday school. So she started teaching Sunday school, didn't know a thimbleful about the Bible. And... Uh, it's a real testimony to uh, what, how God can use somebody who uh, is willing to be used. So she just volunteered and started t- teaching and eventually led to writing what many consider to be one of the best uh, Sunday school curriculums ever written. And a whole generation of baby boomers were educated on the Bible with that, with that curriculum. It's still used in, I don't know, maybe hundreds of churches as a framework for Sunday school curriculum for teaching kids. So there you have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, make sure you're ready to study the word, that you're in fellowship, spiritually prepared to focus on the Lord this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your everlasting faithfulness, your faithfulness to who you are, your faithfulness to your word, your faithfulness to your promises in the word. And, Father, we are thankful that you always watch over us and provide for us. We're thankful for your grace and your mercies, which are new 
every morning. Now, Father, as we prepare to study your word, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us and that we can come to a greater understanding of your plans and purposes for history, for the future, and that we may, uh, having understood this, have a better understanding of your word, that we may more accurately interpret it and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the last, I think it's three lessons, we've been on a little bit of a topical study dealing with the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a crucial, crucial topic in the scriptures. It's not one that you'll probably hear a whole lot of of sermons or Bible studies on unless it's a a prophetic study or unless uh, it's some other kind of tangent. And then in many cases, at least in my experience, uh, something is wrong because or they get something wrong or they orient it wrong because this topic is one that is not understood a lot. And I'm not patting myself on the back. It's taken me years of study getting into a lot of, you know, really... uh, integral passages of Scripture to come to be able to handle a lot of these issues because there are some problem passages that people struggle with. Uh, there's disagreements among uh, men who are very, uh, very solid students of the Word. And uh, <clears throat> so it's important for us to understand this because it's one of those doctrines that isn't out there in front in the Scriptures like salvation or the doctrines of the Holy Spirit or doctrine, pastor, teacher, but it undergirds a tremendous amount of things that are in Scripture. In fact, one of the things that I learned early on in seminary in studying the Old Testament is that many, many people look at the kingdom of God as being the overriding theme of Scripture, and they mean that in different ways, and I'm not going to get into it, but it is just a, it's, for some people, it's really difficult uh, a difficult thing to get into and a difficult doctrine to get into, and it really undergirds the, a lot of what's in Acts, especially the first uh, the first six or seven chapters. The phrase kingdom of God is only used eight times in the book of Acts. It's used at the beginning several times, and then it's used at the very end where we're reminded that as the church grew, they began to t- continue to teach the doctrines related to the kingdom of God. So we have to understand what this really means because uh, it, it looks in some of these passages as if what is being talked about is something that came when Jesus came and is somehow operational now. And it looks that way, but it's not that way. But because it looks that way, there are many people who believe that we are in some form of the kingdom now or we're in a different kind of kingdom than what Jesus originally offered, or we're in some sort of spiritual kingdom. And the implications of taking those views, how they work themselves out in terms of how people approach social problems, how people approach political problems, how people approach church problems, or even the spiritual life, are dramatic. But a lot of this comes back to understanding of the kingdom of God. So that is why I've taken a lot of time both at the beginning of our study in Acts and now here. I think I did about four or five classes uh, at the beginning of chapter one, and I'm done four this time. Uh, together we'll package those as a, as a set study on the kingdom of God, and that should give us pretty much all that we need to come to for, uh, solid conclusions on the kingdom of God. So 
just to review what I covered last time and the time before, is that you have these two different ways to look at the kingdom of God, and we might, let's substitute another word so you get the drift of this. Sometimes word substitution helps us to catch something. It's the rule of God or the reign of God. That's what a kingdom is. It is a dominion. There are three things that are needed to have a kingdom. You have to have a king, you have to have a domain, and you have to have the exercise of that dominion authority or dominion power within that domain. So you have the kingdom of God mentioned in terms of two set and distinct ways of approach. The first I have up here is the universal rule of God because God is sovereign. That is the first attribute we focus on of the ten attributes in the essence of God. Sovereignty of God relates to his authority over all that he creates because God creates and rules over his creation. He is the one who is in ultimate authority. There's no authority higher than God. So this refers to the universal rule of God, The theocratic rule of God has to do with how his rule within human history is worked out. And this has uh, several different manifestations uh, within human history. So in terms of the universal rule of God, that kingdom has always existed. As long as God exists, it is eternal. It is without beginning and without end. But the theocratic rule... Also, some writers refer to this as the mediatorial rule because God's working through some creature as a mediator. The mediatorial rule is a historical kingdom, primarily in, in our context among mankind. The kingdom of God is universal. The sovereign universal rule of God is over all creatures, angels, man, the birds of the sea, fish of the, I mean, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, beasts of the field, over everything. Whereas the kingdom of God is located on the earth. It is focused on the human race. It's focused on planet earth. The, the universal rule of God speaks of the kingdom of God as God's direct rule. This is his sovereign rule. God directly oversees human, human history. And then the kingdom of God, uh, in terms of the theocratic rule, is mediated through an agent on the earth. For example, in the garden before the fall, the agent is Adam and Eve created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, uh, 126. At the, at the uh, uh, at Mount Sinai, it is through Israel. And then in the future millennial kingdom, it will through, be through the Son of Man, uh, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ then the universal rule of God is God's unconditional rule over all creation. It's not conditioned on any kind of creaturely response. His authority is his authority, and it is established over all of his creation, whereas the theocratic rule of God operates within a covenant structure between God and mankind. Someone observed many years ago that that only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has somehow willingly uh, limited himself to work with uh, to work with mankind within a legal contract or covenant structure. He's not arbitrary. He operates according to these covenants that he gives to man, which outline 
the parameters of his relationship with us. So it's not guesswork. We don't have to say, well, I wonder what God wants. Uh, I think that God wants this. There's no room for subjectivity within that framework. God spells everything out, what his limitations are, what man's limitations are, and what's required and expected of man. In chart form, you've seen this. The universal sovereign kingdom goes is without end, no beginning, no end, God's rule over all creation. And then within history, we have his initial theocratic reign on, the, uh, on earth prior to the fall. Man is created as the vicegerent to rule over God's creation. He is created according to Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27, I think I misspoke earlier and said 25, 26 and 27, that God has created man as the image and likeness of God to rule, a word that uh, environmentalists don't take kindly to. Um, Man was created to rule, to govern responsibly, to rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, beasts of the field, over all of God's creation as his representative. But when Adam sinned, that gets lost, and man is not functioning as he should because of the nature of sin, and there's not a, another manifestation of the theocratic rule of God within history until Mount Sinai through the theocracy of Israel. Then, of course, the Spirit of God left the temple uh, in around 595 B.C., and that's the end of that first theocratic kingdom. Then Jesus announced the mysteries of the kingdom in this age, which we'll study a little bit tonight. And then when he returns at the second coming, he will establish the thousand-year messianic kingdom, which then transitions at the end of the millennial kingdom after the great white throne judgment and the new heavens and the new earth into the eternal theocratic kingdom. So last time, just to kind of summarize what we did the last time, The kingdom that the Old Testament prophesied. Now, you've heard me say this so many times, and some of you have heard Arnold Fruchtenbaum talk about this, and you've heard other people talk about this. You just think, this is so simple and so basic. It's so simple and so basic to you all because you've heard it so many times, and you really haven't heard somebody else from another viewpoint uh, promote this. But as I pointed out last time, this is grounded on a literal understanding of Scripture, which is, and how would we prove that? How would you prove that from Scripture that the Old Testament, that the Old Testament taught a literal, earthly, geophysical kingdom on the earth? How would you, something very simple, how would you demonstrate that from Scripture? When Jesus came and he offered the kingdom, the Pharisees rejected Jesus' version of the kingdom because he was putting the cross before the crown. They just wanted the crown. They were expecting a literal geophysical kingdom. It just wasn't, their their version of it wasn't Jesus' version of it. But they weren't challenging him when he offered the kingdom. They weren't saying, what what kingdom? What kingdom is this? What do you mean a kingdom? We're We're not expecting a kingdom. They didn't question a literal, physical, uh, geographical kingdom on the earth. They questioned his version of it in terms of the of its ethics on the basis of his interpretation 
of the Mosaic law. So the Pharisees clearly had a literal understanding of the kingdom in terms of its reality. So I look at passages like Isaiah 33:17 to show that there was an expectation of a literal king. Isaiah 14:1 and 2, there'd be a literal land with a literal geographical location. Jeremiah 23, 3 through 6, to show that there would be populated. Its focal point was on the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Isaiah 2, 3, there would be a literal temple in the land and all nations would come to Jerusalem uh, to worship at the temple, that there would be literal nations involved in the um, uh, regathering of the uh, Jews from all of these nations, and that was in uh, Isaiah 11, 11. There was the expectation of a unique ruler that would be both fully divine and fully human. This can clearly be seen in the Old Testament. There are clearly these passages that talk about the fact that this future ruler is going to be born. He's going to be the seed of the woman, going to be born a literal, physical, human descendant of David, but yet he is ascribed the characteristics and qualities of, of deity. Isaiah 32, 1 and 2, he, this king, this future king, would reign in righteousness. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 introduces a key terminology that he's called the son of man, indicates his humanity. But he comes with the clouds of heaven. He's the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven usually relates to all of the angels. Clouds are often associated with the presence of God, but he is distinguished from God, the Father, who is identified here in Daniel 7.13 as the Ancient of Days. And it is to the Son of Man that he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Daniel 7.13 and 14 is very, uh, very important. And notice, <clears throat> we'll see this um, as we get into Matthew, some of the passages in Matthew tonight. Verse 13 says, I was watching in the night visions, that's Daniel watching. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Down in Daniel 2 talks about a kingdom from God in heaven. Now, Matthew and only Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. In the other gospels, in Mark and Luke and John and in Acts and in the rest of the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God. Why does Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven? The primary reason he does is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Jewish audiences treated the name of God with such respect that they didn't like to utter it. So rather than using the name of God, he used a circumlocution to refer to the location of God's throne, which is heaven and the source of this future kingdom. And so Matthew uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven, showing his uh, sensitivities to his Jewish audience. We learn that the government of the kingdom will be a benevolent monarchy. Isaiah 9, 6, again, a child will be born, indicating humanity, and he would be called mighty God, uh, father of eternity, prince of peace. Daniel seven fourteen, I just referred to, also speaks that he is going to be given an everlasting dominion, um, the king will be over kingdom and his authority will be over all the earth zechariah 14:9 and also isaiah 9:7 9, 
Now, we covered all of that in the last lesson, so this brings us up to date. This is the Old Testament teaching. There is an expectation in the, among the Jewish people that increases through the 2nd and 1st century B.C., so that by the time you get into the period around the birth of Jesus, according to Josephus and others, there was this expectation that the Messiah was coming. This would probably have been fueled by their understanding of the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel's 70th week. They understood the countdown from, uh, uh, from their return to the land uh, under uh, after the decree from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. And so there was an expectation that something was going to happen. This is what the Magi, who were not Jewish, the Magi were uh, Parthian kingmakers. They were uh, descendants of a tribe of Medes. Uh, you remember the Medes and the Persians that dominated uh, and defeated the Babylonian Empire. The Magi were a tribe of of, uh, of uh, Medes who were known for their ability to fortune tell and these other things. But Daniel became uh, inducted into their order because of his ability to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And it is not stated anywhere, but it makes sense that as Daniel was such a tremendous witness to God and to his plan that he would have, uh, through his prophecies, made known the uh, coming, the timing of the Messiah. And so some of these magi were descendants of magi at the time of Daniel, and they understood the coming of the Messiah, and that's why they were watching for him uh, when Jesus was born. That's why they uh, expect a sign in the heavens. It just isn't something that, that just happened because they were astrologers or astronomers, and suddenly they looked up in the sky and went, wow, there's a new star tonight. Let's go see where it leads us. Because you can't follow, you follow a star that's way off in the sky, it's not going to lead you anywhere because the closer you get to it, the further away it becomes. You can't take a star and go to a house. But this light in the sky was different and they could follow it to a specific location. So you have uh, all this Old Testament expectation of a kingdom. So at the time of John the Baptist, at the time of Jesus, there is this developing expectation of the approaching time of the Messiah. Now, we get something like that today. Every few years we have somebody who says, Jesus is coming back and gives us a date. They usually, they always get it wrong. They haven't gotten it right yet. And they usually come out with plan B. Although this guy from a couple of weeks ago, he's on like plan D now. Apparently he did this back in the early 90s, came up with the date for 94 and it was wrong. So he moved it off about six months, missed that one. So now he's tried it again for uh, May 20, what was it? May 20th, 21st, 2011. Didn't work. So now it's going to be in October. And if you pay attention to how he describes these future events, he, he's all messed up. He's not even biblical. He thinks the rapture is going to occur and six months later the earth is going to be destroyed. There's no seven-year tribulation. There's nothing related to Israel. There's no kingdom. I mean, it's just like he's dreaming this up, uh, looked inside of his imagination, reached down very deep to the very bottom of the basement and pulled out his own theory and was impressed with it and said, look what I found. 
And, uh, and so he gets all this publicity, puts up billboards everywhere around the country telling people that on May 21st the earth is going to come to an end and, of course, nothing happens. And all it does is, is just give people an occasion to make fun of Christians. Look at this silly guy. This, and, make it, and it looks like this is typical of all Christians, and most Christians, all Christians, should just sort of reject this individual. But we live in an age of expectation. We look out at things that are happening on the international scene. We look at things that are happening in terms of, of um, technology and the growth of knowledge, and we look at that greatest sign of all signs, and that is that Israel is back in the land, that there is a nation, a Jewish nation, back in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are there awaiting something, uh, waiting, looking for peace, and there, there's no peace. Uh, and, and every president that we have comes along and thinks that he's going to uh, uh, be able to untie this Gordian knot, and he can't do it. Someone will, and that will be the Antichrist. You won't see it, and I won't either, so don't worry about that. But that's, that's where we're headed. So this nation is significant. There's some people who think that Israel's back in the land. It's not prophetically significant. They could all be run into the sea next week, and, um, and then it'll somehow they'll come back. God will bring them back sometime down the road. And that's just not biblical. Isaiah 11:11 11, 11 says that God will bring them back from all the nations of the earth a second time. Now, that return is what occurs just before the kingdom of is established. So if that return that comes just at the time that, that the Messiah comes to establish a kingdom, if that's the second return, what's the first return? The first return, I believe, has to be viewed as to what we have seen since the first Aliyah in the 1880s, the first Im- mass immigration of Jews back to uh, back to the Holy Land, because... For the tribulation period to begin, there has to be a nation in the land, a nation that will enter into a peace treaty with this person called the Antichrist. And that, so that means there has to be a nation there. It has to be reborn. And so the fact that there is a nation there now is prophetically significant. Does that mean Jesus is coming back next week, next year, next decade? No. It just means that God has created uh, once again, brought together a set of circumstances that make it seem as if things are close. And they look that way from a human perspective, and they may be. One thing that I keep thinking of is the demographics, the birth rate between the Arabs and the Jews. And if the Lord tarries much longer, uh, the Jews will be run out of the land just by virtue of the weight of numbers from the uh, high Arab birth rate. So it doesn't seem, if you just look at it demographically in terms of numbers, that the Lord has to wait very long because if he waits too long, they'll be outnumbered and run off, pressured out into the sea. But, you know, all kinds of things could happen that would change the direction of those demographics. So just because it looks one way today doesn't mean it'll look that way tomorrow. I mean, who would have ever thought that we would have an Arab winter? Oh, excuse me, spring. Uh, just watch this. Watch this. Watch the newscasts. Be, pay attention to this terminology. They keep talking about this Arab Spring. But if you, especially, for example, in Egypt, when they had the re, uh, 
this uh, uprising, de- uh, democratic uprising, and people just want to drool over themselves. They're just so ecstatic about this. These Arabs are going to become uh, uh, democratic. But if you look at the various uh, various uh, polls that are taken, uh, they want Sharia law. They they want Islam to have a vital part in the government. They they want the Muslim Brotherhood to play some role in the government. Uh, they they still want to uh, uh, behead uh, or stone women for adultery. They still want to uh, do any number of other things related to Sharia law and have that part of Egyptian law. That's not an Arab Spring, folks. Uh, in the heart of a Muslim, there's no room for democracy because there's no room in their their uh, religious belief, their view of ultimate reality of Allah as a as a unitary monotheist. There is no room for them to value the individual as the individual. The in, in, take a look at at. at at, at what the Bible teaches in terms of both the Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament, God created man in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. There is an equality of person from the very first chapter of Genesis between men and women. When you get into the New Testament, you have that same equality of purpose. People say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? He didn't want women to teach, and he was down on women. He was really just a misogynist. No, he wasn't. I mean, the Apostle Paul said things about women in the New Testament that were radical in, a, in that Greek-Roman culture of the first century because he saw that there were, there were role distinctions, but not that there was personal inequality. But if you look at Islam... The, the woman has less value than the donkey because the donkey helps in agricultural production and the woman uh, is only good for making babies, and that's it. Women have no value, and that isn't going to change in, uh, in the Arab Spring. There's nothing being said or indi- to indicate any of that, and there's also indications I've been reading lately um, there are things that are happening. For example, uh, no show of hands here. I'm just being uh, rhetorical. How many of you have heard about the fact that there was a uh, there was a, dem- a, a violent demonstration against the Israeli embassy and several people were killed about three or four weeks ago? Hmm. Let me see. ABC, NBC, CBS, all the little alphabet soups of our news agencies did not report that here, and it was energized and fomented by the same people that brought you the original, quote, democratic revolts in Tahrir Square back in January. Same people. They're just as anti-Israel and anti-Semitic as they can be because it comes out of their religious belief with Islam. So nothing's changing. Nothing's changing there. So we can look at things like that and say, hmm, wonder where things are going. Looks like it could be close to the end. And so you'll also hear people. I heard one dispensationalist on TV the other day, and he was talking about these are all the signs of the times. Well, the signs of the times in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are the signs of the second coming, not the rapture. No signs have to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. It could happen at any moment. And so, uh, but you always have this, this level of confusion. But my point is, is just like that first century B.C., there was an increasing expectation that something was going to happen. 
and you have that today. It's an increasing expectation, uh, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's this guy this last uh, uh, last month with the rapture is going to occur on May 21st, or whether it's next year when the Mayan calendar uh, predicts some uh, huge uh, transformation that occurs in December of 2012, I believe it is. And people are already, movies are coming out, people are getting all excited about this. That's because there's some sense going on that something's going to change and that whether, who knows whether it's Jesus or the Mayans or whatever, but something's about to change. So you had that same thing that happened in at the transition uh, from the first century B.C. to first century A.D., of course, they didn't call it that at that time, but we do, and so you know what I'm talking about. And it revolved around the fact that the Jews had this expectation of a kingdom and that the Messiah was going to come and give them a kingdom. Now, their their understanding of this had been distorted so that they thought the Messiah was going to come and give them political victory over Rome. And they failed to understand that there were two different aspects that the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. One was that he would come and suffer, that he would be rejected. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, many other passages in Isaiah, and other passages are taught that the Messiah would come and he would rule victoriously. And they thought that they focused on the kingdom passages and they interpreted them in a literal manner. But they failed to interpret, they failed to be consistent, and they did not interpret the suffering passages in a literal manner. So when John the Baptist and then Jesus showed up, they had a message. They didn't explain it. They just said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. They didn't need to explain it because when they said that, everybody knew what they were talking about. They were talking about this literal kingdom that would be led by the descendant of David, ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem, that there would be this new glorious temple and that all of the nations would be under their political uh, dominion. Now, when we get into the New Testament, I thought it would be interesting to see how how the phrase kingdom was utilized in the Gospels. Now, not all of these relate to the kingdom of God. The term is used a few other ways in other contexts, but for the most part, they relate to a kingdom. But notice the uh, the emphasis here. Notice the proportion. Matthew uses the word kingdom 55 times in 53 verses. Mark uses uh, the word kingdom 20 times in 18 verses. Mark's a shorter, shorter gospel. Luke uses the term 46 times in 44 verses, almost as much as Matthew does. John only uses the term five times in three verses. Acts uses it eight times in eight verses, but it's critical to understand Acts because the book is bracketed with references at the beginning and at the end. Paul uses it 14 times in 14 verses. All but two clearly are in the future. Uh, the remainder of the writers, James, Peter, First uh, John, Second John, Third John, Jude, only use the word kingdom five times. Revelation uses it nine times in nine verses, a couple of times to refer to the kingdom of the beast, but mostly it's related to the kingdoms of man and uh, the coming of the Son of Man to establish his kingdom. So this is how it is spread out. So obviously there's a huge emphasis in the Gospels. We have to remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are very similar. 
They are almost synonymous, which is why they're called the synoptic gospels. They talk about many of the same events. Um, John is very different. It's interesting. Why would Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the kingdom so much and John almost says nothing? When did John write the gospel of John? Very late. 85 to 90, some think he might have even written it after Revelation. This is after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The offer of the kingdom is no longer at the forefront, so he hardly mentions it. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written before the fall of Jerusalem, and so there is an emphasis there on that message that John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples had in offering the kingdom uh, to Israel. So what do we see in the Gospels? First of all, we see that the kingdom is announced by angels. I want you to turn in your Bibles. We're just going to flip through some of the Gospel passages here. Uh, None of this uh, really relates to just one verse, so you get to practice your find the verse in the Bible skills tonight, a little sword drill time. Sometimes uh, I probably put too many verses up on the screen and uh, you get lazy looking up verses, so we'll spend a little more time looking up verses tonight. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, you have the announcement to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, that his wife Elizabeth, who's, be, who's barren, uh, is going to have a baby. And it's going to be John, uh, he's supposed to name him John. And then the second part of the chapter is the announcement to Mary that she's going to have a baby, and that her baby is going to be like no other baby that's ever come uh, into human history. But in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 11, we have the angel, this angel of the Lord. This is not the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. This is an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah while he is ministering inside the, uh, inside the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, comes to him and tells him, don't be afraid. Uh, your wife is going to have a baby, and you're going to name him John in verse 13. And then goes on to describe some things related to uh, this child. And then when we get down to verse 17, when we get down to verse 17, the angel says, He will go before him, that is God, the he there relates to God. He will also go before... No, let me get that right. Look at verse 16. And he will turn many, the he meaning John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He, that is John the Baptist, will also go before him, that is God, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then there's a quote from the Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this is a quote that comes out of the Old Testament comes out of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Some think he was Italian, it's, but it's not. It's not Malachi. It's Malachi. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord would precede the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom. And Malachi goes on to say, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that is Elijah. So when the angel quotes Malachi 4, 5, and verses 5 and 6 to John, the, John's father, to Zechariah, he understands what that means. 
that this is talking about this Old Testament predecessor who will announce the Messiah. So it's clearly related to the coming of the kingdom. There has to be Elijah to announce the king, then the king comes when the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and then the kingdom comes. So you have an announcement by angels to Zechariah and to Mary. And in later on in the chapter, skip down to verse uh, 30. Skip down to verse 30, and <clears throat> Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. From the Hebrew Yeshua, meaning to save or Savior, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So there's, he's going to be the king. He is the expected Davidic king. And so this is announced by angels. Um, and then in verse 32, uh, verse 32, he gets the throne of David. So, And then verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the first thing is the angels announced to Zechariah and to Mary that their children, John and Jesus, will be directly related to this kingdom, the forerunner, the, the one who gives the announcement, and then the king. This kingdom is anticipated by the Magi. So now we're going to go to Matthew. We'll spend more of our time over to Matthew, so turn back a couple of books to Matthew chapter uh, 2. Matthew chapter 2. Remember, Matthew is a gospel that is written to uh, Jewish people to explain that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we read at the first verse, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Uh, looking for him. And they're saying, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, they're looking for a king. And Herod doesn't say, it's me. All of a sudden, he realizes who they're looking for. There's a messianic expectation. Even pagan, wicked, paranoid Herod understood that they were looking for this messianic king. They weren't looking for him, and he's scared to death. Earlier in Herod's reign, he had been run out of Judea by, the, by a Parthian invasion. And now these Parthian kingmakers are coming, and they're looking for a king, and it's not him. You know, his paranoia is really going nuts here. But I guess it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. So he calls in his chief priests and scribes of the people, in verse 4, to inquire where the Messiah was going to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and then they quote from um, uh, Micah 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, not the le are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people uh, Israel. So the Magi are looking for this king, and the king is born in Bethlehem, and the prophets don't come up and say, oh, he's just a spiritual king. He's only going to reign from heaven. 
No, they're interpreting it in a literal manner. And because they interpret it in a literal manner, they get the city right because Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And when when Herod uh, finds out, he's going to send his troops down there to slaughter all of the babies. They They understood that the Bible was supposed to be interpreted literally. Then when Jesus and John the Baptist grow up, all that takes place between chapter 2 and chapter 3. John the Baptist comes out, and he is preaching, making proclamation in the wilderness of Judea. And what's his message? In Matthew 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it is this kingdom that is announced by John the Baptist, and then it's proclaimed by the Lord himself. So John says the kingdom is at hand. We'll look at the terminology there in just a minute. Then the Lord says the kingdom is at hand. They use the same word all the way through here, the same verb. When it says the kingdom is near, is near is a verb. And that verb is, in the Greek, it's engizo. And we read in Matthew 4.17 that Jesus' message wasn't new. Same message, John. He just stole John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Engizo. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What's the, the gospel just means good news. And the good news was the kingdom is at hand. Now we have to understand what in, at hand means. Now this word in Gizo is a, an important word uh, for us to understand and to, uh, to recognize. It is a Greek word. It is a Greek word that means something is either near in time or near in space. You know, something can be near. For example, my Bible is near. That's near in space. It can be near in time, but it's, it, can, it can be close but not cl- that close. We don't know when it will come, if it's an imminent event. And the word here that it's translated in Gizo according to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, means something is approaching. doesn't mean it's here yet. It just means it's approaching. The uh, Bauer Arndt Gingrich uh, Greek-English lexicon says the same thing, but adds this. It says it means something is drawing closer to a reference point. Well, that reference point is the establishment of the kingdom, so it's, it's close. Something is approaching. Now, the kingdom message was also the commission that Jesus gave to the 12 apostles. And he said, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice he didn't send them to the Gentiles. He just sends them to the house of Israel because that's the group to whom the kingdom in the Old Testament was promised. Wasn't promised to the Gentiles. Still isn't promised to the Gentiles. Matthew 10:6. go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim saying the kingdom of heaven is in Gizo. It's approaching. It's it's near. He's making an offer, uh, an offer of the kingdom. Now another thing we should note is that this verbiage comes right out of the Old Testament. In Gizo is used in the Greek Septuagint. That's the tra- Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And in, several times this word is used in Isaiah to talk about the, the fact that God's coming is near in terms of the kingdom. In Isaiah 56, 1, for example, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is near. And 
the rabbis used in Gizo to uh, express that. So this word in Gizo had a had a significance within the under the interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. They knew that the kingdom was coming; it was near, it's approaching. Now Jesus comes along and uses the same terminology. John uses the same terminology right out of the Old Testament. They're, they are saying, "Remember Isaiah? Isaiah said that." God's kingdom of justice and righteousness was approaching. Now we're here to say it's here. We're making the offer. Later, Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples in Luke 10, 1 through 9, only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and they were to heal. See, that was one of the signs that the kingdom was here, was there would be healing, the blind would see, the lame would walk, uh, the, the, the sick would be healed, and so when Jesus came and performed these miracles, it wasn't because he was just a good guy. If he was just a good guy and the purpose was just healing people, he would have gone down to the hospital and just healed everybody. But he didn't do that. He was selectively performing these miracles as his credentials to show he was the Messiah. In fact, according to the rabbis in the at that time, uh, the, only the Messiah would be able to restore sight to the blind. And so when Jesus restores sight to the blind, uh, it, it blows their minds. They just don't know how to handle that because they've already rejected this. He can't be him. And yet he does what only the Messiah would do, and they just have to be spiritually blind to what they saw. Now, there are a couple of interesting passages that I do want to look at. Luke eleven twenty is one of them. I want you to turn over there. We were in Matthew. Uh, we didn't have time to look at all those that I brought up, but I do want to look at these two. The first one is, well, let's look at the second one first. I want to take them in reverse order. The second one is Luke seventeen twenty. Let's look at Luke seventeen, verse twenty. Again, we have a confrontation set up with the Pharisees. This is one of about. 12 different times in the Gospel of Luke where the Pharisees come up and start questioning Jesus. They're trying to create tension. They're trying to create a conflict. They're just causing trouble because Jesus doesn't agree with their interpretation. They want a kingdom on their terms, and Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the kingdom God uh, God promised. So in, uh, in Luke 17, we, see, we read... Um, Verse 20, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So they come up to him and said, okay, you keep saying the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God's approaching. When's it going to come? Give us a date. Jesus answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That's the New King James translation. Anybody know what that means? I'll tell you in a minute. Nor will they say, look here or look there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, let me tell you the modern psychobabble interpretation of this, and that is that the kingdom of God is in everybody. Everybody has this little divine light, and it's like the glow little glowworm song, and everybody's just going to has this little light glowing inside of them, and God just looks at you and says, oh, I put this spark of deity, divinity in you. That's not what Genesis 1, and 27 says. It, that doesn't say God put a spark of divinity in anybody. It says he created us to represent him, to be in his image and likeness. That's not the same thing. You can't read 
a spark of divinity in people into that. That's just some kind of transcendental nonsense that got dreamed up by somebody who didn't like the Bible. What what Jesus is saying here is not there's there's something that the kingdom of God is in you. Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, let's just think about the context. To whom is Jesus talking? He's talking to the Pharisees. Now, do they have a warm, fuzzy relationship, or they have animosity? It's animosity. Jesus is not going to look at his opposition and say, the kingdom of God is in you. Let's just all put our arms around each other and sing Kumbaya. Jesus isn't going to say that. He never said this to his disciples, and these are the good guys. So we have to just think logically and contextually that Jesus didn't have a, 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 a you know, a senior moment here and lose touch with reality. So what's he talking about? Well, first of all, we have to understand what he means. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. What he meant by that, as cryptic as it may seem to us in terms of the, uh, in terms of the context, uh, what he meant by that, I've gone through some of the other options and the most likely uh, interpretation of this is that Jesus is talking to them in terms of what's going on in their culture. And I just spent a lot of time describing that. What's going on in their culture? They're looking for the kingdom. And they're looking for the signs of the times, just like wisdom back in the 80s, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 88, and just like this guy a couple of weeks ago saying that Jesus is going to come back on May 21st, 2011. The Pharisees are looking for signs. They keep asking Jesus for signs. They, they, they want to see these signs because they think the kingdom is going to come. And Jesus is saying it's not going to come by observing signs. The, that's not the issue. So that's what he is talking about here. Um, they're looking for signs and ignoring who they're talking to, who is the, the one the signs would point to. So they're ignoring the person in front of them, and they're focusing on signs. So what he's saying here is, the kingdom of God is not going to come by looking at all these different signs. They're not going to say, see, look here, or see, look there, there's the kingdom. For indeed, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. And this word that he uses, I've got the Greek word up here on the, on the chart, is entos. And entos can mean within something, but it also has has the idea of among you. And it's important to understand that the you there isn't singular. He's not talking about Jesus is inside you as an individual. He's talking to y'all. This is a second person plural pronoun. And he is saying the kingdom of God is something related to, uh, related to all of them. And so what he says here is that the kingdom of God is uh, in your midst, or some think it has the idea of being before you, such as in Isaiah 45, uh, verse 14, you have a similar use of that Greek terminology. It can't mean that Jesus is inside them because nowhere else is the kingdom viewed as some internal principle in the Scripture. This would be the only place. So it can't mean that. It can't mean that it's inside the Pharisees because they haven't accepted his message, so it's not there. And he never uses this to refer to the disciples. 
So some suggest it has the idea of in your grasp or in your power, but they, those people usually end up with something very close to the third option, which is that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's being offered to you. The kingdom of God is before you because the king is in your presence. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke seventeen twenty one. This isn't a term that you can use to support uh, your, your positive self-image, that the kingdom of God is in you. Uh, and it's used that way in some psychology or so-called Christian psychology. The other verse where there's some confusion is in chapter 11, verse 20. So turn back about five chapters to Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Again, there's a conflict with the, uh, with the Pharisees. Jesus has cast out a demon, and they're saying, you didn't do that in the power of God. You did that. You did that by being uh, empowered by Satan. This is the that climactic event when the Pharisees accuse him of really being the tool and pawn of Satan and that he isn't the Messiah. This is the the, the, the climax of his uh, offer of the kingdom, and after this, it's not offered anymore. He says in verse 20, But if I cast out demons um, with the finger of God, surely the kingdom, and, and that's a first-class condition, if and I do, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this uses a Greek word, thano, which means to be close at hand or has arrived. And it's arrived in terms of the presence of the king. He has made that offer. And so he then uh, uses a little parable. He says, when a strong man fully, fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that, is that when the kingdom, when Israel is uh, merely relying upon a strong man, then uh, that, that strength is incapable of providing the protection that only God can protect, uh, can provide, and they will eventually, they will be despoiled if they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So 11.20 and 17.21, both, even though they use different words than in Gizo, they're both talking about the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, it's near, it's approaching, it is present in the form of the king. Now all that's background, then when Jesus dies, is buried, rose from the dead, What's the first question we really see the apostles start to ask him? And that is in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's the same kingdom. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2 is that Peter starts to talk about the event that immediately precedes the coming of the kingdom, which is the Joel 2, 28 to 30 uh, passage, and Joel 3, which talks about the day of the Lord. So he quotes from Joel 2 and says, this is like what Joel 2 said, and then he connects them, uh, these ideas together in his message to the, uh, to the Jewish people there on the day of Pentecost, ties it to David, ties it to Psalm uh, 110, that the Lord is ascended to the right, uh, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and so now the issue is, will, Jesus, will the Jews accept the, the offer of the kingdom? And so the command then in 238 was to repent 
uh, let each of you be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's another way of talking about the kingdom. Now, that brings us up to date. Now, we're going to get a much more uh, overt offer of the kingdom in Peter's next message, which in Acts chapter 3, we'll come back to that next time to talk about Acts chapter 3 and understand this. Now, these are the last major mentions of the kingdom at the beginning. It underlies the first six or seven chapters, but then we'll come back to it when we get to the end of the book. So I just wanted to cover this so you can remember that when we get to the New Testament, the point here is that the kingdom is coming, it's future, it hasn't been established. And what God is doing in this age is he's calling out people from among the Jews and the Gentiles to be the, the, the citizens of the kingdom that he establishes in the future. So that uh, the, what we see in the Gospels in terms of this offer of the kingdom and its rejection, and then the mention of it in the Gospels, is that this is uh, now taking us forward in time where that right now God is calling out a people that will be the aristocracy that will rule in the kingdom. And so the kingdom is not now existing on the earth, but only in the sense that God is selecting and preparing a people that are going to be the spiritual nucleus, the spiritual leadership of the established kingdom when that comes. So that's the mystery right now. Uh, This was not anticipated in the Old Testament that there would be this delay of the kingdom. And so the kingdom is postponed so that when you see passages like I talked about on Sunday morning, Colossians 1.13, we're transferred from the authority uh, domain of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son, or the son of his love. What we see here is that this is calling out this future uh, kingdom leadership in this age. It's not a king, doesn't mean the kingdoms now. It's pulling out people who will then be the leaders with Jesus in the future kingdom. So we'll come back and look at that uh, in the message of, of, of uh, Peter in Acts 3 next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to focus on uh, your plan and your purpose, that you still have a plan for Israel. Your plan includes a future kingdom, a uh, kingdom of glory, where the Messiah will rule and reign from the uh, throne of David in Jerusalem. And, Father, that when Jesus returns and establishes that kingdom, then those who return with him, that is the resurrected, raptured, and rewarded saints, church-age believers, will rule and reign with him in that future kingdom. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.